In 15 years, if we meet up and I'm working in a crypto, in a repurposed battery crypto mine, you're welcome to bully me as much. I'm going to take a selfie of us and sell this an <laughs> NFT at that point, Sam. Yeah. That's fine. Welcome to Power Talking. As always, I'm your host, Brian Jungers, and I am very excited to bring you today's episode that is all about batteries and how they're made. We are talking about lithium-based batteries and the materials that make them up. I'm joined today by eSource Vice President of Battery Solutions, Sam Jaffe. eSource recently acquired Sam's company, Karen Era. We're very happy to have his expertise on batteries in-house now at eSource. We're also joined by CEO of Luna Lithium, Emily Hirsch. Let's get into it. Sam, you uh, tell everyone uh, who you are and what you do at eSource? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm Vice President of Battery Solutions, otherwise known as the VP of BS. And I have been in the battery space for 15 years doing uh, analysis and, and research on, on batteries and how to make them and how much they cost to make and who uses them. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. And Emily, thank you for joining us. Would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Hi, I'm Emily Hirsch. I'm the CEO of Luna Lithium, which is a private exploration company developing a project in Nevada. Um, I, I look for lithium. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Really glad to have you on the show. Let's get in and and uh, and have some questions. I um, I've been working on electric vehicle research and development for almost twenty years now, and I used to be the high voltage lead when I was building prototype plug in hybrids at UC Davis. We were using prototype uh, large format Gaia lithium cells from Germany that we were able to procure and stick in this you know, prototype vehicle. So yeah, I've got a lot of history with this, but you know, this is a question that I get all the time. I get this, you probably, Sam, Emily, you probably hear this from a lot of people, which is, are the life cycle impacts of electric vehicles, particularly their batteries, more significant and more impactful, negative, uh, than the impacts associated with gasoline vehicles and the extraction of, of oil and refining and uh, combustion of gas. So what do you guys think about that issue? I mean, as I understand it, you kind of, or, or let me put out my understanding and have Sam tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think that when you look at life cycle assessment from a, a mining and disturbing of the environment standpoint of an electric vehicle plus battery versus a ICE vehicle, I think at the point of manufacture, the EV is slightly worse but then depending on where you get your energy from over a period of like months to three years, those curves cross. And after that point, you're better. Look, look at gasoline for what its strengths and weaknesses are. It is an incredibly energy dense material. That's why we use it. It's great at, at storing energy. And unfortunately, releasing it is a very inefficient way of doing things because you're literally exploding it and capturing as much of the energy of that explosion as you can. But in the end, in, in the best gasoline engine, you're only capturing 30% of it. And most gasoline engines are significantly lower than that, right? So um, you're automatically losing 70% of the carbon that you're releasing to unuseful work. Whereas if you're using electricity from the from a coal-fired power plant, 
even in that case, that coal-fired power plant is probably at 40, possibly 50% efficiency if uh, on a spectacular day, right? That's probably not true. Let's say 45% could be the best it could go. I don't know, Brian, if you if you have a better number than that. But you're still producing electricity at a significantly better efficiency by burning coal than you are by burning gasoline to move the car. You have approximately 9% line losses on a national basis in the U.S. So you, you lose another 9% transferring that electricity to, to the car. Um, and then the car itself is operating at probably 90 to 95% uh, electric vehicle efficiency rating. Um, so you, even if you're burning coal in a uh, power plant, in a, in a coal-fired power plant, you're probably still producing less carbon than you are by burning gasoline. Now, for the full life cycle analysis, going back to um, you know, how the lithium is made, how the nickel is made, all of that, compared to how the gasoline is made, every study I've seen is, is in consensus that the well-to-wheel life cycle analysis of gasoline is atrocious and enormous amounts of energy and waste are created in turning, in getting petroleum out of the ground and turning it into gasoline. Um, and that every other mining exercise is, is comparatively advantageous in that regard. So let's take a step back a second. You mentioned earlier geothermal projects. I think probably a lot of the people listening here do not really necessarily know what that means, what those projects are, how they're different from other types of uh, you know, lithium extraction. Could you just step us through what are the types of projects that are out there in the wild? What are the most common? What are the, you know, what are the best that are out there? I'm just kind of describe that. To yeah. Us so when you look at lithium as an element, right, uh, the thing that makes lithium work so well in batteries is that it's the lightest and least dense metal and that it's highly reactive. It just loves to do chemical reactions because of its sort of two electrons that fill up its shell and then that third electron that's all alone, you know, universes apart from the nucleus. So lithium always occurs chemically combined in nature or lithium metal never occurs in nature. You always have to find lithium either chemically combined or dissolved in a brine. You have sort of three categories of lithium bearing raw materials. You've got hard rock, spodumene or other pegmatite hosted crystals. You've got sediment, which are your clays, your claystones. Um, you're going to throw the Siberia, Siberia, what am I talking about? Serbia, um, <laughs> Serbia project. You've got lithium that occurs in a sedimentary rock, and then you've got lithium that occurs in a brine, right? So currently all commercial production comes from either spodumene, hard rock, which is what you're seeing come out of Australia, where you basically have to dig a hole, smash up some rocks, make a concentrate, which is little pebbles, put them in a box, mail it to China, where they turn it into lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate. With brines, you pump the brine out of the ground. Um, and currently what happens in Argentina and Chile is you put them in what are essentially giant kiddie pools at high altitude in the sunshine, and you let the water evaporate off while you throw other chemicals in to make the non-lithium ions precipitate out of salts to sort of fall out of the bottom, moves from pool to pool, and you get a lithium chloride concentrate that you then turn into lithium chemicals. So we've got three big categories, pegmatite-hosted hard rock, 
sediment type brines. Within your brine category, you can then have sort of three other very general distinctions. You've got calm conventional brines, uh, solar salt flat hosted brines, like what you've got in Argentina, Chile, like Albemarle's deposit in Nevada. But then you've also got geothermal brines, which are brines that are deeper under the earth and at high temperatures that are usually associated with some kind of a geothermal energy project. And then you've got oil field brines. So that's kind of like what you've got in Arkansas um, that Standard Lithium is working with in this Macover formation, as well as companies like E3 Metals in Canada, which are uh, brines that are oil field associated. The reason those distinctions are important is because when you're looking at what's going to be the best chemical process to make lithium, to essentially get the lithium out of this brine and turn it into other chemicals, because those brines have different characteristics or different qualities, they'll behave differently. So the, the best technology for one will probably not be the right technology for another. So they're, they're distinctions that are interesting to understand so that you can say, okay, well, this brine, this lithium brine in California might have a very high lithium content. It's also going to exhibit different characteristics that means you wouldn't want to use giant kiddie pools. They might not work. Or you might look at an oil field brine and say, oh, this is a, a lower lithium concentration. But if the brine's already coming out of the ground and flowing as part of, for example, in Arkansas, a bromine operation, it might be economically feasible to extract the lithium from it because you aren't having to pay the cost of pulling it out of the ground in the first place. You know, as I'm thinking about this, and I, I might be way off base here, but when I got into energy in the first place, like 20 something years ago, I was doing a lot of hydrogen research. And one of the things they always said was hydrogen is the most abundant atom in the universe, but you never find it as just hydrogen. It's always locked up with something else. And it feels like lithium is kind of similar boat. It's fairly abundant, but it's locked up in all these other places. You don't find lithium metal by itself. You don't find it super concentrated. You have to kind of extract it in these various ways from the various sources where it exists. Um, and I mean, maybe it's a stretch, but there, there's a lot of argument about, well, we should, we should do hydrogen research. We should be investing in hydrogen as a, as a alternative fuel and, you know, the electric vehicle technology of the future versus battery electric. And, you know, I kind of picked my side. I worked more on plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles uh, that are battery-based. But what do you guys think about the, the hydrogen versus, you know, battery debate? Here's your important distinction, and then I don't know enough about this to have a strong opinion. Hydrogen's a fuel, lithium is not. Sam, do you want a hydrogen vehicle? No, I do not. It is a very inefficient way of getting around. But I will also say, Brian, that every uh, hydrogen fuel cell researcher that I knew 10, 15 years ago is now a battery researcher. And that might be changing because there's suddenly a massive interest in hydrogen, a, a little bit of a renaissance going on. But um, within there, you know, I, I would say 15 years ago when I entered this field, there was there were two camps and they hated each other. And now there's one camp comprised of the uh, the the victors, the battery people from 15 years ago and the prisoners of war, the hydrogen people that moved over to batteries. So it's the the war is over. <laughs> I've I've heard it said this way, or people I know who spend their lives researching these things say electrify everything you can 
use hydrogen to make e-fuels for the stuff that you can't. So long distance airplanes should probably have a hydrogen derived fuel mix shipping again, trucking. I think that trucking would be maybe on the fence, but for, for things that batteries just don't cut it, I think hydrogen based fuel is a good source or a good a good solution to decarbonize those industries. Yep. I think that's a very reasonable, reasonable uh, outlook. Well, Emily, are there any other anecdotes or experiences you want to share about your time developing lithium projects, things that you think folks might need to know or should know you want to share? I do have one thing that is a, a sticking point with me. I am tired of ESG being lumped into one category. What does ESG stand for? Environmental, sustainable, and governance, right? And it's kind of the catch-all term that we use for stuff that's green, green, green stuff, right? And, you know, it's everyone has their, you know, I had a guy, I had a real person tell me I needed to add more ESG to my pitch deck. And they were like, you should say you're doing this. And I'm like, but I'm not doing this. And they're like, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm like, it does matter. Um, don't tell me to be more ESG. I'm as ESG as I possibly can be and honest about it when I can't. On a, on a human level, it irks me that like environmental and sustainable, those are science words. We can measure that. That's an LCA. We should require that companies publish an LCA. Governance is sort of our catch-all term for how are we treating indigenous people and communities that may be impacted by our activities. And that does not belong in the same category because that is not something you can measure. That is not something that you can get a certificate that says you're doing a good job. And I do not think it is fair to impacted stakeholders to put them in that category. This is my TED talk. I love it. It makes a lot of sense. And I think we're, we're just at this point where there's so much focus on how do we actually do right by disadvantaged communities and historically highly impacted environmental justice communities. And then there's this awareness, this collective awareness that we all now have that we need to do something and we need to care and do more. But I think there's still a huge gap in actually doing it and knowing how to do it. And so you know, we're kind of still figuring that out, but that is, is a really great point. Thank you. And I would love to hear Sam's take on next generation batteries. Um, they still need lithium, that's for sure. What are we doing? Like, what's what is your take on on sort of solid state or getting lithium metal into the anode? What happens to the cathode? What are timelines are there? Um, still ten years out, in my opinion. Um, still, it's going to take a long time to to turn those into mass production batteries and um, make them affordable and make them work really well. Um, especially for cars. Cars are a very, very challenging application for batteries. Um, we're now getting high silicon content um, batteries that are coming in this year and next. So that really is happening now. And the lithium metal anode batteries are very close too. But going from that to mass production for automotive is, um, it, it's, it took us, what, 30, 40 years to go from the first Sony produced batteries to, uh, you know, lithium ion cells that really worked really well in cars. 
And um, there's still a long way to go for, for the lithium metal anode batteries too. Yeah. So I, we're, we're kind of out of time, but I just, because I have you both here, I want your opinion very quickly on second use battery applications, taking batteries out of like an electric vehicle and then putting them in a stationary application. Do you think it's a good idea, bad idea? What would it take to make that actually fly as a concept? What do you think? It's a wonderful idea that really satisfies the the human need to reuse reuse things and not waste things. Um, but economically, it's and and I would argue potentially environmentally, it's it's a bad thing um, because you you end up taking a, a a battery from a car, which is a relatively gentle life cycle. The car is parked ninety percent of the time. And putting it into a stationary storage system when it's all used and beat up, and then the stationary storage system to make revenue needs to be operated nonstop, right? It needs to be cranking out as many electrons as it possibly can, and um, you know, putting it into a much more challenging duty cycle um, when it's already damaged, already unhealthy. Um, whereas if it's not really that unhealthy, it should stay in the car. Keep it in the damn car. You know, that's where its greatest value is. Um, meanwhile, your other opportunity cost is recycling. So you're not necessarily taking, keeping this from the trash heap. You're keeping it from the recycling center, which is a different environmental uh, calculus completely. So this is a modern day hydrogen versus batteries capture the flag exercise <laughs> because Sam is more knowledgeable than me on a lot of these areas, but there's something in me that I just like the idea of a second life better than I like the idea of ripping it down and recycling it. In the United States, because of the economics of individual vehicle ownership and how much money the federal government is putting in recycling, I don't think we'll see second use here. Whereas in places where they are going to be doing battery swapping, right? So where the driver of the vehicle owns the vehicle, but the battery is leased. So it's like a service and you have, you know, these battery swapping stations that are going to have a number of batteries that they cycle through. I think that if the batteries aren't owned by individuals to begin with, the case for using them as a, but I don't, I like I hear Sam and I know he's right, <laughs> but I think that if you, I think that there's an assumption baked into Sam's thinking of the individual ownership of the battery and that the battery is not used for X period of time and that it's going to be challenging to get them into the hands of a second life user and that second life user is going to have to deliver the most electrons possible in this and this. I hear that, but I think if you changed some of those assumptions, I think that I hold different assumptions to Sam that I can't articulate well, but I just like the idea of at least one second life before you rip it to shreds and turn it into a battery again. How, how about this to, uh, to satisfy that need? I want to see multiple lives, not second life. I want to see that battery when it's parked 90% of the time, getting as much possible value out of it. That might mean vehicle to grid. It might mean doing other things with the battery while it's in the car. Um, mine for crypto, right? <laughs> mine, yes, yes, absolutely. 
somebody's got to do it, right? Um, <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> but, you know, how about multiple lives lived simultaneously? <laughs> That's what I want to see. I think the, the, the lowest hanging fruit in transportation energy is a parked car. How do I get value out of a parked car? There's going to be lots of business models built around that that end up working really well and work better than repurposing the battery when you take it out of it. I will agree with that. And I will hope that we can have a gentle person's agreement not to bully the loser of this bet 10 years from now when we have to trade camps. Because one of us is right. I hate admitting it, but like this is the one that I've conceded defeat on. But then when I saw that battery swapping is kind of getting emotional energy behind it in Asia again. I was like, I'm not ready to abandon this ship yet. Get me a bucket. In 15 years, if we meet up and I'm working in a crypto, in a repurposed battery crypto mine, you're welcome to bully me as much. I'm going to take a selfie of us and sell it as an <laughs> NFT at that point, Sam. Yeah. It's fine. No, Ken, Ken Hoffman from McKinsey, if I can't buy a car in 2025 with a lithium metal battery in it. The man owes me a horse, like, and I'm going to hold him to that bet he made three years ago. So 15 years from now, this is, this is on the record. Okay. Yeah. You better get that horse. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being on the show. This has been so informative and interesting and fun. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Thanks very much, Brian. Great work. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can learn more about all of this at esource.com slash batteries. Bye.